You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, my name is Danny Anderson. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College, and I am joined today um, by Nathan Gilmore, who is also an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College. Nathan, welcome back. How are you? And tell us a little bit about Disney. Oh, I'm doing well. I survived Disney, uh, survived the gigantic piles of food that were placed in front of me, uh, and I'm ready to wrap up a semester, man. Right. And I'm also joined, we are joined by Michael Farmer, who is Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in uh, St. Bonaventure, Minnesota. Michael, how's it going? At least it was a real saint this time. Oh. (laughs) Bonifacius. Bonifacius. Okay. Uh, So how are you doing anyway? Oh, I'm all right. All right. This is the last full week of uh, classes. Next week's finals week, so I'm, uh, I'm glad about that. Oh, our our finals start today. Oh, You're in you fin- guys are the worst. <laughs> I mean, I thought I thought we ended early, but you guys are already in finals week, which means by the time this episode airs, you'll probably have turned your grades in. Oh yeah, yeah. Or we'll be in trouble if we didn't. So yeah. Yeah, um, that's the other possibility. <laughs> be lucky if I haven't strangled you. <laughs> Well, today we is uh, episode number one twenty one uh, point zero. There's no, there's all three of us are here, so there's no uh, hashtags uh, associated <laughs> with this one. And uh, so we have uh, today. We're going to be talking about George Orwell and specifically his essay "Politics in the English Language." Nathan, this was, I think, a, a suggestion from a viewer or a listener. I'm sorry. Um, is am I correct about that? Yeah, and I forgot to look up. Who I believe it, was it is Todd that. Pedler. Okay. Thank I you. Oh, say, was it Todd? Okay. I think I think so. If if it wasn't Todd, I'm sorry both to Todd and to whoever actually suggested it. Yeah, well, I that... meant to look that up for a recorded and I forgot to. Well, and that suggestion actually got me to go back and look at the essay again and I ended up using it in class a couple of weeks ago and I really kind of uh found a lot to be interested in with it and so I thought um since I would be hosting this one it would be a great one to go to. So, um Let's uh, just kind of jump right into it. Uh, Nathan, let's start with you. George Orwell has, I think it's safe to say, achieved kind of a mythological status in our culture. And his name is seemingly invoked in almost any sort of political or rhetorical situation. It's uh, tempting to just throw his name out there almost as a gesture now. And it's really easy to lose sight of the actual man in his career. Can you just take a few minutes and ground us a little bit with a brief sketch of the man and his work, and then maybe if you can place this essay somewhere in the arc of his career? Certainly. First of all, I I had never researched his life because I I was one of those uh, endless trains of the foolish who just tossed around Orwell as a a talisman of sorts. Uh, What surprised me when I was researching for this episode is just how young he was when he died. Uh, He died in his late 40s. Uh, He was not by any means an old man when he died. Uh, he was he was a definitely a child of the British Empire, uh, born in India, uh, went to school in Eton, where and this this was the biographical detail that was just the gold mine for me. 
where one of his masters at Eton was none other than Aldous Huxley, which I, wow. <laughs> if, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, so if you ever wondered if, you know, uh, brave new world in 1984, were in conversation, maybe not, but they were in the classroom together. Um, but he then served, uh, served in the Imperial guard, uh, in Burma, uh, before returning to Paris and then eventually to England. His famous books, the ones that most of us have read, if we've read some Orwell, uh, actually came very late in his career in the 1940s. Uh, so Animal Farm, uh, he, he actually published just a few years before his death. And then 1984 uh, was published just before he died. Uh, so, I mean, we're talking about, you know, very late in a very short career when we're talking about those. Politics of the English Language uh, was actually published somewhere in between there. It's a 19, I believe, 46 essay. So w- what we're talking about is, you know, his mature work. Yeah, 1946. I just double-checked my notes. Uh, so we're talking about something that comes fairly late but in a short career. Uh, Michael, is there anything else about his bio that you would want to bring up? Um, though he did not live very long, his his output is unbelievable. So if you go to Wikipedia, they, they have a, a bibliography, a George Orwell bibliography page, and I think there must be a thousand items on it. Um, mostly, mostly essays and book reviews, it's true, but this, this man wrote an enormous amount. Like, I, he, he's one of those people that I can't imagine anybody has read everything from. And right, so, right. So, so five or six pieces have come down to us uh, as, as classics, but his, his output for such a short life is just astounding. Yeah, I mean, that much literary output, and he didn't turn 50. I mean, that's hard for me to imagine anyway, just because I do not have any sort of literary output of that magnitude planned for the rest of my lifetime, and I hope to live past 48. <laughs> Makes you feel guilty. <laughs> not me, <laughs> I'm a, but I'm pretty lazy that way. <laughs> well, I, like what Michael's saying, though, I think that one thing that's remarkable is we remember 1984 and Animal Farm, right? But the vast majority of his work is sort of um, uh, journalism and, 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 and literary nonfiction. And, and so the fact that um, it's interesting to me that we remember 1984 for its sort of uh, – you know, prophetic vision and all that sort of thing. But I do think you can also see that prophetic vision in this, in this essay. And so like, I think it's interesting that it comes sort of between animal farm and 1984, uh, in terms of chronology, because a lot of the themes of 1984, which are sort of fictionalized there are kind of, to me, brought up in a, uh, um, kind of nonfiction way here. And so I think that the, the influence of nonfiction uh, on his fiction is, is, is pretty stark. And I think that that's really one of the more remarkable things um, about him. Have you, um, I, I've taught, I've had the chance to teach a few of his nonfiction pieces and I'll talk, talk a little bit about that later. And students really do um, enjoy reading them, even though maybe not enough of us do. Um, oh, sure, sure. I've, yeah. I've taught a fair bit of Orwell's short nonfiction as well. Yeah. I must say, I've never taught him. Well, then, Michael, since uh, as punishment for that, uh, despite his title, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the politics of this essay are a little bit murky uh, as Orwell fires a pretty broad shot across the political spectrum and all the kind of 
uh, messiness of language. Uh, it doesn't seem to be attached to any particular uh, creed or kind. Uh, can you situate the essay within the political movement that Orwell was writing to? And uh, how much, uh, how might its broad critique reflect his own political and, and maybe even artistic ideals? Well, I mean, the the thing people tend to forget about Orwell. So he he gets invoked a lot against what opponents of socialism like to call statism. Um, and and he gets invoked a lot because of 1984 and Animal House, and and indeed he was a fervent anti-communist, as he was a fervent anti-fascist during World War II. Uh, what people forget about him was that he was a fairly committed socialist, and so, uh, for example, Newt Gingrich said, I think it was just a few months ago, that George Orwell would oppose socialized medicine, and, well, no, he probably would not. <laughs> uh, um, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, I, I think he would probably be staunchly in favor of that. But at the same time, he's kind of a weird guy, because while he is a socialist, he's a committed socialist, He's also very traditionally English with all that entails. So his name has kind of been sullied a little bit the last couple of decades by his involvement in colonialism. Although I think he also has a critique to offer of colonialism at the same time that he kind of promotes this old-fashioned English way of life. And I, I do think you see both of those things, his socialism and his traditionalism, come together here in politics and the English language because he, he, he has here the... the lament of the traditionalist, right? He he is complaining that language is not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a problem. But the reason it's a problem is because it allows for totalitarianism. And and not not to belabor the point, but Orwell saw socialism as the cure for totalitarianism, not as something that would lead to totalitarianism as so many of his would be disciples believe right. today. And, and that is so hard for twenty first century undergrads to understand. Yeah, although it makes pretty good sense to me frankly most of most of the big intellectual opponents of communism were in fact socialists right yeah mm -hmm. oh yeah, i'm sorry I, I paused here to give danny an opportunity to say lionel trilling's <laughs> name <laughs> now i don't have to but the, the whole new york intellectual scene really uh in on this side of the world um definitely falls right in sort of the line that you're talking you're describing um, Orwell and the sort of uh, anti-communist left. And, and so I think that that's how we would describe them here in the sort of radical era of the early or mid early mid 20th century. And, uh, and Orwell is sort of like a British version of that, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they also have that traditionalism that you find in Orwell as well, although, of course, their traditionalism is American rather than British. And, and and so you also get them falling out of favor a little bit uh, as we move into the 21st century. Actually, they've fallen out of favor substantially more than Orwell has, um, probably because Lionel Trilling never wrote a novel that people read in high school, <laughs> if, if I had to guess. In fact, I don't know how many people read his novel at all. Uh, people who write dissertations about them, I think. So. There, yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> so, so Orwell is... Orwell is writing in 1946. Um, the, the fascist threat has been largely quelled, right? I mean, it's not like fascism has completely disappeared, but Hitler has been defeated, Italy, Mussolini's been defeated. Um, and, and so n now the issue is capitalism on one side, capitalism run rampant on one side, and communism on the other. And, and, and he, is, he is writing, although he doesn't say this directly, 
he is writing to encourage people of his essential political stripe to write more clearly and thus he says to think more clearly because that is the only way to resist totalitarianism in particular is is to think clearly so he he sees the muddied writing that he criticizes in this essay as an invitation to be trampled by either the forces of the market on the one hand or the totalitarian government on the other. Mm -hmm. Nathan, what do you have to add to that? Uh, really? I mean, the, the politics that he is opposing, I mean, are, are something along the lines of what later gets called by Hart and Negri, although I hate this book by them, uh, what they eventually call empire. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things that I think is notable and I'm sure it'll come out as we continue to discuss is the fact that, this is the sort of language that removes human agency from political life. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things, and when we get down to the nuts and bolts of the thing, to use a cliche that Orwell would not approve of, uh, you know, we'll see that, you know, the sorts of language that he most despises are those forms of language that either allow a totalitarian communist state uh, to do things that a human being would be condemned for without the condemnation or on the other hand that, you know, human beings can do and then blame one of my favorite nonsense words of the 21st century, but we'll get to that later market forces. Uh, so I, I definitely think that, you know, the politics here are a, and I, this is going to sound egotistical calling them this, but they are a humanist politics. Uh, it's a politics that, you know, insists on, the agency of human beings and considers it a lie uh, when language refuses to name the human agents doing things. Well, I do. I think that you're right, Nathan. I think that uh, the the identifying a sort of humanistic core to to this essay is 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 right on. And I feel like much of the language that he describes is you sort of as uh, he's um, is really poking fun at. He's this is there's really kind of a lightheartedness uh, to this essay uh, that's. Maybe maybe easy to miss if you're not looking for it, but he's actually a little like funny about it. But a lot of the the terms he's using are very mechanical in nature, and, and so all these sort of Latinate forms of uh, of, uh, of of verbs and things that he really finds offensive. And I think part of what makes them offensive is that they remove any sort of like humanity uh, from it. And so I, I would think that when I when I see the kind of there's a political theory at work here, but I also see an artistic theory. And I, I feel like when you read some of his nonfiction, what makes it so compelling is that he, he never relies on these sort of broad, um, easy descriptive, uh, easy sort of uh, telling words, right? He, he always goes to showing words. And, and so I've, for instance, taught the, the essay A Hanging um, several times. And, and that's a, a particularly moving um, piece because of the details, the like the the dog and, and that, and so all the the little details that are entirely human uh, are what make that piece work. And all of his nonfiction, I think, works so well. Um, and I think that you see this is almost like a theoretical text <laughs> um, a, a, for like an artistic uh, manifesto in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, um, Nathan. Uh, Orwell does provide us with a few categories to describe our language's decline. Uh, there's dying metaphors, operators, 
verbal false limbs, pretentious diction, and meaningless words. I think we'll put a uh, a link up to this essay uh, probably with the show notes uh, for folks who want to read it on their own. Oh, certainly. Uh, uh, can you uh, maybe pick one of these categories and explain the problem by applying it to a contemporary situation, maybe with an eye of determining whether he's too worried about the subject or not, I don't know. Uh, but feel free to use this question as a saddle to ride one of your own hobby horses. And note that I am uh, using really bad metaphors all throughout this. Yes, today. indeed. Yes, indeed. So, yes. <laughs> that, that was purposeful. Yes. I, I had a hunch you were being ironical there. <laughs> yes. so I... At least uh, you didn't I, mix it. At least you know, saddle and hobby horse go together. That that's well, true a, enough. True enough. I didn't. That was a that. result of that was a result of revision. I had uh, I had a different uh, thing other than saddle, and then I changed it. Oh, that's hobby too bad. Horses, so, so. <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm going to take the the last item on this list because the category of meaningless words uh, is one that isn't immediately evident. Uh, by meaningless words, I mean he doesn't mean. Uh, umfaz norgeep or jabble 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 uh, but rather he means words that used to mean something uh, but have that have lost their connections to real human existence so some of the examples he provides uh, romantic plastic values human sentimental natural uh, the ones that he really sits on are the terms fascism which he says now has no meaning except so far as it signifies something not desirable uh, and then democracy, uh, which he says that, you know, if you try to define it in actual political scientific terms, uh, the heads of state all around the world will resist that because everyone wants to call themselves a democracy. The and what this Republic. Yes, indeed. Right. Yes, indeed. And actually, my, my brother Ryan, when he does stand up, that's one of his bits. He says that uh, the more democratic sounding words are in your the the official title of your nation the more frightened you should be (laughs) (laughs) so but what this reminds me of uh is an essay actually from the american rhetorician richard weaver uh when he talks about contemporary terms in no ultimate terms in contemporary rhetoric that's what it is uh it's one of those ideas that you know really pops up uh in this world war ii era and post-world war ii scene uh, and what I find interesting is that technologically, this is an era when radio is ubiquitous. Oh, to use another word. See, I'm going to be catching myself this whole episode, Danny. Uh, but when radio is ubiquitous, I'm just going to go ahead and say it and claim it. Uh, when television is coming into its own, uh, when we are in a cultural moment where the long form newspaper essay is giving way to the broadcast news program uh and in that context uh these words that might have had some sort of novel meaning at some point have simply become placeholders for good and ungood to go to 1984 for a moment uh so i mean i I think that this is something that if anything has multiplied uh so that i mean there are certain words and you know, you all know my my favorite hobby horses about this. You know, the whole uh, the freedom word is the one that I think gets most egregiously abused. Uh, but certainly in modern political discourse, I mean, there are just all sorts of words uh, that if you press someone and say, okay, what does that word actually mean? There is no network of signification there so much as there is sentimental weight. Uh, so, I mean, the meaningless word is the one that really resonated with me and one that, uh, I probably mark 
more often than any of the others in my own students' papers. Nathan, uh, do you do you think those words can be rehabilitated? Rehabilitated? Uh, since we're recording the Christian Humanist podcast, I certainly hope so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because it seems to me that the solution <laughs> those is, are two words that need rehabilitation. <laughs> the, the solution to me, it, it seems, uh, you know, as an existentialist, the word freedom is rather important to me. Oh, um, sure, sure. The, the solution is not to stop using the word or even to switch to a better word, but to define the word. Right, right. No, no, no. And yeah, you do well, Michael, to correct me there, because I did make it sound like we should just cast them aside. And I think that's Orwell not... kind of seems like a, he, that, that's what he's saying. He, he, doesn't, he, yeah. he doesn't really talk about rehabilitating them. And it, it seems to me that those are perfectly good words. It's just we, we can't let the reprobate demagogue politicians throw them around like they, like they don't mean anything. We have to start using uh-huh. them in a way that does mean something. Sure. And one interesting thing about this is this is not unique to English by any means. I, I'm reminded, Danny, of a recent Socrates Cafe conversation we had where uh, one of our students said, you know, this is why I wish we had ancient Greek because it's so precise that, you know, its words have an exact meaning and you can yes. say exactly what they mean. And I, I asked the student, how much Plato have you read? <laughs> <laughs> Since the central point of most Platonic dialogues is to take a meaningless word from Athenian Greek and to examine it and to recast it and and Michael I think to rehabilitate it so uh yeah I certainly hope that words can be rehabilitated because that's certainly one of my projects just make sure you don't drop Greek words into your English writing or Orwell will come after you I think he's (laughs) I think he's a little ridiculous about the use of foreign words and phrases well sure I mean there's there's definitely some of that uh, I mean Trying to think how to how to name this British pompous, uh, pompousness. Well, I was going to say a linguistic chauvinism, but that's it, itself a a French phrase. So that's true. I, <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful. You know, I do. In his defense, though, um, uh-huh. I, I, and this is just to play the devil's advocate here. Uh, I, I do feel like the problem with bringing in these other phrases isn't so much that they're not British or that they're not you know Anglo-Saxon or whatever, but that they tend to be. Um, mechanical in their use, and so he particularly he he, he mentions um, the the foreign words that Marxists drive uh, bring in, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, it happened to be typically Russian or whatever. And so he's like saying, I, I think that the problem with it in then isn't so much that it isn't British, but that it's just sort of mechanically and unthoughtfully used. And so, Oh, uh, I don't uh, know, Danny, I think you're giving I, him too much credit. Uh, I, I, I might be, <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I feel and, like, and the only reason I say that Danny is because J.R.R. Tolkien also had a distaste for all things French. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, I mean, where uh, Bilbo and Frodo Baggins live bag end. Yeah. I mean, that, that is an Anglic or an, an Englishing, of uh, cul-de-sac. So Bilbo and Frodo live in the cul-de-sac. Oh, it but sure is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, that I, as far as I can tell, and I mean, I, David Grubbs, if you're listening, you can write in and tell me I'm full of beans. Uh, but, I mean, as far as I can tell, I mean, he is at least on some level, you know, mocking the fact that the cul-de-sac has become a feature of suburban life. Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, I just watched those movies with my kids over Thanksgiving break. Actually, I, uh-huh. I, I would like to go back and think about that now. That's really <laughs> interesting. But but I I feel like though there is a sense, and I'm not uh, trying to forgive him of any sort of uh, snobbery. But there is a sense though that 
the problem isn't so isn't entirely, let's say, that they're foreign words, but they are removed from the common use. Um, and so the common use in his context is English. And so the humanism that you were talk, talking about before, mm. like I think requires sort of like a, a personal engagement with the language and something that means something to the person using the language. And when someone imports words for, for a mechanical enterprise um, where, you know, if you're a Marxist, you have these sort of set assumptions about the world and we have set words that work within those assumptions. Let's right. bring those in. Bourgeois. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like it's it's not entirely snobbery. I do feel like there is sort of okay. a uh, a critique of of utility uh, in there as well. Okay, um, but, yeah. that, that... but at a certain point, don't you stop arguing for clarity and start arguing for the dumbing down of the language? Hmm. At what point does the prohibition on foreign imported words become a prohibition on words with three syllables? Which you know, your 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 average reader t today, I suspect, is going to have trouble with words with three or four syllables. Yeah. Oh no, that's an interesting question. I mean, has the cultural moment changed enough that Orwell's counsel here might be poisonous for our moment, whereas it was medicine for his own? Or to use one of those great clear Greek words, might it be a pharmacon? I, I had a hunch you were going to go dairy da on me there. I... <laughs> That's a good question, Michael, though. Um, and I do think that he accounts for that on some level towards the end of the essay. He says that if you look through what I've done, you'll certainly find many cases uh, in this very essay where I've broken my own rules, basically, right? And so I think he it's less a, a set of, of hard rules. And in fact, one of his rules are break any of these rules before saying anything truly barbarous, I think. Uh, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. And so I yeah. feel like this isn't so much a um, like a, a prescription, but as a uh, a conscience. And I feel like uh, he wants you to, he wants the reader to at least think about the reasons why you're using this term. It's more uh, of a guideline. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think, the safety, the safety net for what Michael's bringing up, which is actually a really good, uh, a really good point, because you could very well descend into barbarism by defending, by depending on these rules. Which is just, itself a Greek word. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's a Greek, it's a Greek word with a long English, English pedigree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but just as he's critical of uh, like Marxist um, linguistic programs, I think I think he, there's maybe a sense in his own mind here that this could end up in becoming a linguistic program that's just as reductive. Uh, and so I, I think that what you're point bringing up is exactly right. All right. Michael, is there one of these categories that you want to talk about? Um, the, uh, the, the verbal false limbs made me think of what sometimes gets called bureaucratic style. <laughs> um, how best to describe bureaucratic style. If you imagine a, uh, a, a document written by a lawyer, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, or a uh, high school freshman, mm -hmm. uh, oddly enough, they dovetail. It's, it's, it's these long strings of prepositions, uh, passive voice constructions, the, these very long sentences that don't really say anything you couldn't say in a couple sentences. Uh, so, so for example, he says, um, it's easier to say, in my opinion, it is not an unjustifiable assumption that instead of, I think, even though those two sentences mean the same thing. <laughs> and students, of course, love this construction because if you have a word 
if you have a, a minimum word limit or you have a minimum page limit, this helps them get there that much faster. And they, they oh yeah, they they don't since they don't most of them do not care so much about the quality of their writing so much as the fact that they get it done. Uh, and <laughs> see, there I go uh, using the fact that which is a construction Orwell hates. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's just what he wants, though, is for you to notice oh, that. That's, that's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, th- th- this is quickly becoming an episode about uh, Foucault's Panopticon. Yeah, or, or well, the eye in the sky watching me write. He is big brother. Oh, <laughs> oh good play, Michael. Good play. Oh, that was Danny. No, 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 no. I, I said Panopticon, and you said, oh, you mean the eye that sees all? Oh, okay. <laughs> any, any, anyway, um... So so yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't help but think that Orwell's essay, if taken seriously by students, could maybe end bureaucratic style once and for all. Although that is me being Pollyanna-ish for once, because obviously there's no way that's going away as long as students are writing their papers at the last minute. Right. Well, well I mean, and then I'm just going to play the composition theorist here for a second. I mean, there's also the inventing the university angle. I was just going to uh, ask you to, to say that, Nathan. That's yeah. The... <laughs> uh, so in other words, I mean, there is a sense in which. Uh, some students have to progress through what you're calling bureaucratic speak before they can emerge on the other side, writing glorious Saxon prose in the Orwell mold. Where are they learning the bureaucratic language, though? Well, I mean, I, and you know, this is Paul Bartholomew's famous essay, "Inventing the University." Uh, his theory, and I'm I'm inclined to think that he's probably right, uh, is that students come into this alien place. And what they do is they pick up some of the conventions of the academic prose they see around them, uh, and they are basically creating an identity for themselves out of a patchwork of academic conventions. Uh, and that, you know, to to jump to another book, Helmut Thielicke's little book, uh, A Little Exercise for Young Theologians, he talks about the sermons of seminary students as evidence of a theological puberty, Uh, And I think that that might be what's going on with this disgusting bureaucratic prose that you're talking about, Michael, is that these students have all of these concepts that they largely learn as abstract nominal phrases, right? If you look at a vocabulary list for just about any class they take in psychology, sociology, economics, political science, it's all nouns and noun phrases, very few verbs. They string those things together because they think that's how you're supposed to write in college. And then it's our job as writing instructors, and I would say at all levels of writing instruction because I'm a writing in the disciplines advocate, to guide students into something that you know is more like thinking in text. But that's a, that's a composition theory tangent there. I, it's not that much of a tangent. I mean, this is, a, this is an essay about composition that's used in composition classes. Right, right. So, so if I can be Orwell's advocate and try to correct him a bit, uh, if I could reframe his complaint, I think that there are certain kinds of writers, uh, especially political writers and academic writers in his uh, examples, uh, who are inclined never to grow out of that because there are enough people who are impressed by it that there's incentive to keep doing it. Which I realize is a very de- developmentalist model. Brian McLaren would be pleased. Uh, mm-hmm. But <laughs> but that's the way I think about it, so there you go. Well, And I think that was... Uh, you're getting at what I was going to say to this question in, in combination... Oh, okay with uh, what Michael's talking about with the uh, 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 the operators, uh, the pretentious diction, I think, 
has come in, in many poor ways to define academic writing. So when you, if you read oh, the prof- sure. like a, a if you read the PMLA or some professional like English journal, right? Like we're supposed to be the masters of language, right? But um, very often, and this has improved since the the heyday of theory, I think. Yes, but, indeed, um, it has. <laughs> but it's still uh, it's still very alienating to people who aren't already insiders. And I think that they're already, um, uh, there is sort of an assumption, I think, that um, to say something well is to use very kind of tortured technical um, uh, phrasings, uh, Mm -hmm. both in terms of diction and the operators. And I feel like uh, this is a problem, I think, for academia. And it goes back to the political agenda that Michael, I think, mentioned earlier, is that if you um, have this political agenda, you need to write clearly so that people can uh, like understand what you're saying. And I feel like too much of what goes on in academia alienates us from uh, the larger culture and the humanities particularly get punished. And whenever you see a politician talking about cutting funding for the humanities programs, they come up with uh, titles or uh, 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 passages from humanities writing that sounds ridiculous to people who aren't in the humanities. And I think, I think that and too uh, many of us who are, and too many of us who are, I think. <laughs> and so I feel like, um, those of us who should be most aware of this, uh, uh and certainly most aware of Orwell have kind of, uh, succumbed to the, to the, uh, to the temptations of, of, of easy professional language, I think. Mm-hmm. And who am I to complain? Cause I, uh, I, I praise Martin Heidegger. well and and it's interesting i and i want to go off on this tangent too for a second michael because in my mind and i I only say this because i've tried to write about heidegger uh and i mean to my mind it is almost impossible to get at his concepts unless you reformulate the way language works right it's part of his it, it is part of his philosophical project to say the way Orwell wants you to write cannot get at the truth of being with a capital B, right? Yeah, the language is a well, it's only capital because it's German. Uh, is it true? Right, well, I guess I, I oh, guess they yeah, do yeah, capitalize all, all nouns in German are capitalized. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that the the Heidegger podcast that I listened to said. You know, don't think of it in some sort of you know grand divine sense. It's just a German noun, so it's capitalized. Anyway, uh, that the, the language is a wearisome, worn-out thing, and, and, and so, especially in the middle of his career, Heidegger is trying to find some sort of workaround. To- yeah, yeah. And really, it goes to what Orwell says at the end of this essay, is that if a language is not changing, then it is dead. Uh, you know, Heidegger just radicalizes that and says, in order to think an entirely new thought, which is actually an Aristotelian thought, uh, because often that's what novelty means— uh, one has to think and write in entirely different ways. And I, I, I guess, Michael, I mean, I, that's why I'm cautious when I, when I try to put theory speak into this, into this mold that Orwell is setting up. Cause I, my suspicion is that the best of German philosophy and even to some extent French philosophy is doing what he's doing just in a, at a much faster rate. Whereas what our freshmen are doing in most cases there, are, you know, you occasionally get the brilliant freshman, but in most cases it is more like what he's saying. It is trying to imitate a false erudition for the sake of cheap status. 
But the other thing to keep in mind is that French and German in particular are very, very wordy languages where English does not have to be. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, if you've ever, I, I don't read German, I read French, and, and I, I mean, it, it, it is a it, it is a language where you can be short and clear, like Camus, for example, mm-hmm. uh, especially in L'Etranger, has very short sentences, and, and, you know, they're very clear, but French lends itself to these tortured constructions that Orwell hates so much, um, <laughs> very easily, it falls into that very, much more easily even than English does, and, and, and so I think the kind of canons of style are going to differ from language to language, and so the, mm. the problem with taking up Heidegger as a model is, number one, you're not Heidegger, <laughs> or I'm not, and, you know, for which I thank God every day. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and number two, I'm not writing in German, so I think it's at least possible. I I don't know. I I, I know I, now I sound like the linguistic chauvinist, but I'm not uh-huh. I'm not saying English is better than German because of this. But I, I'm saying English lends itself to shortness and clarity much more than German does. I gotcha. And German lends itself to smashing thirty words together much more than English does. Right, right. Well, and I'm just thinking this summer, Michael, when we were trying to write about Gadamer. I mean, I tried to make that a popular text, not in the sense that lots of people read it, but in the sense that a person with a high school education could read it, and I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the first things you learn when you start reading Heidegger is that he's almost not paraphrasable. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, if you if you paid attention to the New Critics, and I I, I don't love the New Critics, but. They they say nothing is paraphrasable, and I think that's probably about right. I, I, I'm not sure it's possible to paraphrase anything because the experience of reading something is wrapped up in its meaning, even if it's not exactly its meaning. Okay. But we've gone far afield from Orwell now, <laughs> to use a worn-out metaphor. There you go. <laughs> One I'm not even sure what it means, frankly. <laughs> well, um, let me just move on then, Michael. Um this is essay is sort of a college composition warhorse, uh, but it, it doesn't seem to be as anthologized as much as it used to be. When I was a, a undergrad, it was in every anthology, and now uh, it's it's certainly not. But uh, it, it is definitely dated in terms of some of its references and so forth. But uh, I just wanted to speculate: is there a, still a utility for its continued use in the classroom, and what might that be? And I know, Michael, you said you haven't taught it, but, uh, I mean, maybe you could just speculate on, on this. And, and Nathan, if you have taught it, I mean, maybe just draw on your experiences. Yeah, I have never taught it, and I've never been in a class that taught it. However, the six rules he gives toward the end of the essay, I have seen on various um, English syllabuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll read through those quickly because they're quick. Never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. Never use a long word where a short one will do. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Never use the passive where you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. I, I think those are generally good rules to follow, and I think they're rules that if if our freshman writers in particular actually followed them, um, they would probably get higher grades and our lives would be filled with more joy than they are um, <laughs> during the weeks when we're grading those papers. Um, so I think even if you don't assign the entire essay, I think that is a very, very good short list of writing rules. The other thing that I think is helpful is there's a section in this essay where he takes a passage from the book of Ecclesiastes and trans- oh, yeah. translates it into essentially bureaucratic language. 
Um, here, here's what it, the passage is. Uh, the 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 bit about the race not being to the swift, etc. Here's here's what mm-hmm. he says in in uh, in bureaucratic language. Objective consideration of contemporary phenomena compels the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with an innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. I mean, I have trouble even reading it because it's so uh, flabby. (laughs) So I, I think that can be a very good exercise, both having the students translate good prose into bad prose and translate bad prose into good prose. When I, I do do that um, from time to time in class, although it's always hard to find the right passage for them to translate because you don't want something too familiar else. They'll just, uh, they'll just remember it instead of thinking about it. So like there's a list online of, of famous proverbs translated into bureaucratic language. I don't mm-hmm. find that helpful because all they got to do is recognize the proverb. They don't actually have to think about why it's such bad writing. Right. Um, so better better to come up with something yourself. My my favorite thing is to flash up I think it's two paragraphs worth of stuff about some sort of board meeting. The 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 gist of which really is nothing more than um the board may meet without all its members, but it's it's two paragraphs of, of bureaucratic language. So th- that is yeah, something yeah. I do even if I don't use this essay in particular. Right. Nathan, do you do you teach uh politics in the English language? I, I taught it several years ago back at University of Georgia and, and enjoyed teaching it. Uh, it's one of those, uh, you know, I, I honestly, I'm a little bit suspicious of the universal preference for the short sentence. What I always tell my students, you know, in, in disagreeing somewhat with Orwell is that complex thoughts often do require complex language. Uh, just make sure that your language fits your thought. Right. Uh, which, which I'm sure Orwell would, you know, would say, well, of course I think that you dummy, uh, but you American dog. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, now the, the other thing though, that I do enjoy about it is that, you know, he talks about the pretentious diction, uh, and you know, his list of words, I mean, are things that, uh, are not as recognizable for us, but it makes a very nice classroom exercise to generate you know back then it was on a board i guess now it would be on a projector uh a list of you know the pretentious words that people use in 2007 which i think is the last time i taught it uh when they're trying to sound more educated than they are and i mean it's a great little classroom exercise and you know it's something like what you were talking about michael i mean uh what i would usually do instead of that is translate song lyrics into pretentious language and let them translate that. Uh, and it's one of those things where, you know, it was it, it a moment of humor, uh, but then we could actually break down, okay, you know, first of all, you know, these words don't have any rhythm to it, but then also, does this create a picture the way that the song lyrics do? So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one that I have used in the classroom, not for several years at this point, but back when I did, I got a lot of good mileage out of it. Danny, you've taught it most recently. I mean, how did the freshman of 2013 respond to this puppy dog? You know, better than I thought. I actually, 
initially my idea was to give them something. I felt like my readings were too easy. Um, I, I was trying to get them to worry about argumentative structure. So I did a lot of sort of blog post sort of style sure. things. And, and so I became like kind of panicky towards the end of the semester that I, I was fooling them into thinking about like how difficult the readings might get in college. And so I gave them something that was a little antiquated and, and, and I thought would, they would struggle with reading. And I was actually um, very pleased with my, my students did not seem to miss the point. I mean, they, they, they thought he, he, they thought he belabored his point and he made it uh, very early and the rest of it was just repetitive, um, which I kind of, we had to, we had to sort of go through structurally. Physician and see how heal it, thyself, huh? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So we had to go through it structurally and look at what each section of it uh, contributed. But um, um, one thing that we did just to sort of illustrate sort of an exercise out of this essay is I had them just sort of brainstorm as a group phrases that you hear during a political campaign, like not oh, just yeah. words, but phrases. And I would write them on the board, just phrases in random order. And then I would just point at somebody and say, make a sentence out of those. And in every case, they could just throw a sentence together like, like without even thinking, just by reading those phrases. And I'm like, now tell me what that means. And it, of course, means nothing. And so it was a really good um, illustration of his point, I think. But it was also, uh, it gets at, and I think this is one of the things this essay does for me, and at least with my philosophy of teaching composition, I, I don't like to see it. Uh, as a, a purely utilitarian course, like purely a service course that teaches people mechanical skills. I, to me, it's a uh, uh, an integral part of your sort of ethical development as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I and I feel like um, this essay really does get them to think about why what we do in this freshman composition class that everybody has to take and everybody hates is actually extremely important, not just so that you can write term papers for your psychology class later, but because um, it gets you to understand that there are consequences for the way we communicate uh, with each other. And so that is in itself ethics, right? There, there is a, an ethical dimension to what we do. And I think just as a, uh, it, it has practical, you know, application, I think, but it's also a really good reminder uh, that we, what we do is important uh, broadly, not just mm -hmm. as their, uh, in their capacity as a student, but in their development as a human being. And so like, it's a really, Certainly. it worked really well for me. I have to say this semester, much better actually than I had even hoped it would. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, and I know I, I sound really pompous when I start talking about the ethics of comp and people want to accuse me of being, thinking I'm Jesus or something, but, uh, no, uh I, 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 we did, we it, did three episodes essentially on, on the ethics of comp four, if you count the Kreider episode we did a couple oh, yeah. years ago. So, I, I, you know, oh, you're certainly yeah. in good company here. Oh, all right, good. Right. Good. Or at least in common company. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's good. I have had a blast. <laughs> I have had a blast doing this podcast. I have to say, I don't like getting up this early on Tuesdays, but it's a, it's actually been really a fun thing for me. So good. Uh, be, because the company is so good. So. <laughs> um, all right. So, well, Nathan, uh, given the title of this podcast, I thought it appropriate to ponder this essay's relevance to religious discourse in our modern world. Uh, can you speculate a little bit on what it might contribute to a conversation about how Christians write to and about one another. And if you want to go down McIntyre Alley, feel free. <laughs> Michael, do I really refer to McIntyre that often? Uh, not as much as Danny refers to Trilling. Not as much as, really? I, refer, not as, much as I refer to, to Melville or Heidegger. Okay, all right, all right. I, I'm starting to worry there, man. I... <laughs>
number of things going on here. Uh, first of all, one of my favorite exercises, not only in the composition classroom, but when I teach uh, senior seminar, which is our capstone theology course at Emmanuel College, and Danny and I both teach that one, uh, is to have conversation with students about words that get thrown around in religious settings. Uh, and my personal favorite one is the word religion itself, because especially at Emmanuel College, it's become a, a mild cuss word. Uh, and in fact, I mean, that this is one of the things that just bugged the snot out of me. I mean, the last two years and possibly before that, I just started noticing it these last two years in the opening convocation of the year. Uh, our campus pastor, Chris Maxwell, who I like a great deal, he's a friend of mine, uh, would either in the prayer or in the message talk about getting away from a spirit of religion. Uh, and I, you know, that, that's one of those things I, maybe it's because I enjoy Calvin's institutes of the Christian religion so much, uh, or maybe just because I like lost cause sorts of words. Uh, I always, you know, have conversations with students about, okay, what does religion actually mean? And then of course, you know, I, I showed us to Danny, uh, a few years ago when that, uh, and Danny, you'll have to remember his name cause you've actually talked with this video talked uh, with students about this video Jefferson uh, Bethke Bethke that's his name uh when you know Jesus hates religion was the name of his little video uh I wrote a little uh I would say mildly satirical essay about that guy called uh I'm religious not spiritual uh so I mean it's one of those things where you know certainly that word is one that uh has become what Richard Weaver would call a devil term uh, what Orwell would call a meaningless word, but really another thing about a lot of how we talk, and, and this goes back to another episode that we did, Michael, uh, about Phil Carey's book, uh, Good News for Anxious Christians. So many of the formulations that are just part of our evangelical religious discourse uh, are just bad forms of thought. Uh, and what I like so much about that book is that, you know, he heads every chapter with a common phrase from what he calls the new evangelicalism and basically dismantles it philosophically. He talks about how within the logic of the long Christian tradition, uh, it is at best nonsense and at worst heresy uh, to say that you're going to let go and let God, for instance. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's one of those things where I think that uh, there is so much material here that, you know, I picked one example that's especially prevalent at our institution, but so much of what we do as a podcast, I think, is to dig into the sloppy language that defines so much of evangelical discourse. Uh, so I'm going to leave it with one example. Danny, do you have a favorite example of, or not Danny, Michael, let's kick it over to Michael, then we'll go back to Danny. Uh, Michael, do you have a favorite example of bad Christian writing in this respect? Oh, you know I'm going to go to worship music. But I feel like oh. <laughs> I feel like all I do on this program is rant about worship music lately. Okay. Yeah, I mean that that is worship. Worship music has become just this this string of worn out cliches and metaphors and uh, all you know stuff that doesn't mean anything. And 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 perhaps perhaps what we need is a Orwellian poetics for uh, for for people who write those songs so that the songs end up actually saying something but mm -hmm. what a what a bore everybody's tired of hearing me talk about that 
Um, well, I gosh, I could go. I mean, any number of places here, but I, I feel like, um, you know, authenticity is, is sort of the, oh yeah the uh, the term we've talked about it before. I know on this podcast, and and I uh, just can't get it out of my mind because it's such a buzzword. It's like the antidote to religion is authenticity, right? And, and I know Bill Reddings in his sort of famous book, The University in Ruins, then uh, from the mid-90s. Uh, it's sort of a, um, a treatise against the kind of increasingly bureaucratic nature of the university. And um, he talks about how the university as a con- as a, you know, as a broader institution has, dev- has uh, kind of uh, gone down this road of uh, – defining everything by excellence. And so there's this big exploration of the term excellence and how vacuous it is and how it doesn't ah, really okay. mean anything. Uh, and one example he gives is th- there was sort of like a, a university parking services uh, award given uh, for excellence in administering parking. And what did that mean? At one institution, it meant in making more spaces available. At another institution, it makes less spaces available. And so it means making less spaces available. So uh, in itself, Excellence means nothing, uh, in, in uh, like in pragmatic terms, uh, for the humans that inhabit the institution of mm-hmm. of of, uh, of the university. And I feel like, in the same way, authenticity is a word that means nothing uh, to someone who's actually trying to practice faith uh, in, right, in, right. in the real world. And I feel like we we throw it out there as if we understand what it means and that it means something uh, concrete to everybody, the same thing. And so I feel like. Um, that's a, a term that really needs – I don't know there's any way to recover it, frankly. I feel like this is a term that just needs thrown out uh, and banned. And in fact, I I, mean, I led a little mini rebellion, rebellion at my last church uh, in Cleveland before we moved because <laughs> we, we would throw out things. I think – I don't know if it was this term or another one. Uh, I think it was this term, but I, I asked us to sort of uh, – the leadership. Can we just make a pact to never use this term again? And I feel like when you want to say it, think of what you mean and say that instead. Uh, and, and so it, it got some laughs, but we Authentic- tried it. Authenticity, you mean? I, I, it was either authenticity or another word that we would throw around. Um, I, okay, I all right, all right. I don't. I, I can't remember the exact word now. I don't think it was authenticity. It was one of our little, uh, our little own, you know, local catchphrases that we would use. <laughs> but uh, my problem was that you you depend on these catchphrases, and then you stop thinking um, about what it means in any given situation, and it becomes mechanical and rote, right? And so I feel like, um, and, and intellectually deadening, uh, and leading right. to the, the, to the heresies that you're talking about. So right. that's, that's a term that I would, uh, I would pitch if I, and just in case any of our listeners want to think that we only pick on evangelicals, let me see if I can get some of our more liberal progressive listeners mad at me. Um, one of the funniest lines I've seen in a while was when Patrick Deneen on the front porch Republic blog, uh, wrote this sentence, um, uh, Social social justice is basically noblesse oblige on the cheap, <laughs> and I and you know I I I think every time that I see you know and and I mean it's almost always you know folks who are sort of post evangelical uh, want to distance themselves from evangelicalism. Uh, they throw away they throw around that phrase social justice, uh, and once again I mean it's one of those things you know does it mean a sort of libertarian freedom to make consumer choices doesn't mean, um, you know, redistribution of wealth doesn't mean, uh, you know, 
the ability not to have one's wealth redistributed. I mean, what does social justice mean? And, you know, certainly like authenticity, and that's one of those words that I want to reclaim the very rich Heideggerian discussion of it, uh, social justice in certain scholarly works actually has a very strong meaning, but in popular, usually Christian discourse, uh, it has come to become one of those vacuous terms. It means I'm not a fundamentalist. Yeah. I, uh, justice is always my example of a word that has to be defined before it can be used. Cause if you, uh, at least a few years ago when I, when I designed the, uh, Prezi I use for, for, for that class period, um, if you, if you did a Google image search on justice, uh, uh-huh. two of the first images that come up are a dove holding an olive branch and a sword. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that's still still true, but it was in 2011. Right, right. And once again, I want to make clear that uh, we can't simply go to the Hebrew, you know, Sadiq and say, oh, well, that's a lot more precise. Because after all, uh, you've got a Solomonic notion of Sadiq, which is very much, you know, uh, a strong central monarchy. And then you've got a more... Um, Prophet Amos vision of Sadiq, which is a very diminished monarchy in favor of a more powerful sort of agrarian populace. Uh, so one of the things that I think Orwell does and one of the things that I think we Christians should learn uh, is that these words are not things for which we are fi- – woo, that was an awkward sentence. Orwell would not approve. Uh, it's not that we're looking for the one true definition of these words, but rather we're trying to be truthful about the way that they actually function. Yeah. You know, and just going back sort of to my ethics of comp idea about how it's important that we communicate with one another in in a certain Mm -hmm. way, because that assumes a community. Right. And so I feel like as Christians, when we let terms like authenticity and social justice and all these sorts of terms that we're talking about, just sort of be used and, and be, and go, uh, I think what we're doing is just sort of contributing to this sort of, um, dumbing down of Christians through the dumbing down of the language. And I think that's what, uh, Orwell is concerned with here is that he's mm-hmm. linking the disintegration of culture, uh, to the disintegration of language. And that there's a cyclical, uh, uh, dialectical relationship between those two things. And I think within particularly the Christian blogosphere, which I am fairly new to, uh, this is not a, <laughs> something that I'm like particularly, I'm not well read on the blogosphere as, as I'm sure as Nathan is. Um, but, um, but what I notice about it is these very sort of trite, uh, phrases and, and it's basically so much of Christian writing boils down to the idea that you can't earn your salvation, uh, and any attempt to do so is misunderstanding the gospel. And so that becomes the point of 60%, I think of, of most of the blogs that I read. And, and so uh-huh. I feel like, I feel like that is a good point, and, and I agree with the idea, but uh, certainly there's more to be said about it than that. And so, uh, right, in, right. In, in this practical application, but we can't ever get to say it if we don't uh, push back a little bit on other Christians about how they're using these terms. Now, the appropriate way to go about doing that is a, probably the subject of another podcast. Like, how should Christians? respond to one another publicly. Um, right. I think, some, I think some of us have some experience with that uh, question uh, here. Uh, but uh, uh, 
Yes, I've done so poorly a number of times. So look to me for how not to do it. Well, I would like to. Uh, I, I think it's something that it's interesting to me and something I'd like to consider more. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I and mean, you know that again. I mean, words like well, and I guess this is another category of this, Danny. And I and I realize I'm belaboring this point, but that's what I do so well. Uh, another category of I think Christian sloppy language uh, that I would especially want to steer our listeners away from and encourage you, encourage you all out there uh, to think about when you're out there in the Christian blogosphere. And that's what got, got me thinking about this, Danny is what I would call shutdown phrases. Uh, So in other words, phrases that do not invite a reader to contribute the next exchange in the dialogue but one that shuts it down and the bible I, is clear on this matter yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bible is clear on this matter or this is a justice issue that's the one that i've been seeing so much lately uh you know once you say that the discussion is over right uh you know at that point you really can't say anything more because you know at that point you are opposing justice and that is bad 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 that's it's interesting our two examples were from the two sides of the uh conservative liberal spectrum well sure and i and i just want to make clear that i mean uh first of all i'm still living in perpetual fear that someone at some point might agree with me uh but (laughs) second of all that you know this is not something that is unique to what we would call conservative evangelical culture it's not something that's unique to liberal protestant culture uh like orwell uh i think we would do well to note its prevalence all over the place just as this essay does, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 You know, just one last thought. Like, I, I almost can't read salon.com anymore because of, I, oh I think my gosh. what you're, what you're describing, uh, the shutdown phrase, I like everything is a shutdown. Like, uh, every sort of headline and every uh, piece of writing is so sure of itself uh, in its sort of own kind of ethical grounding that everything is phrased in a way to make any response to, claim the banner. I mean, any response to it would be to say, yes, I'm a bigot. I would like to uh, answer you. And so, uh, yeah. and so, yeah, I feel like salon.com is particularly um, falling down a really dark rabbit hole. Uh, Slate <laughs> is headed that direction too. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, I, I love both of those. I, in, in the past, I've loved reading them. Slate is less egregious at this point to me than salon, but yeah, it's, it's really, it's really almost um uh, intolerable for me. <laughs> so, right. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad that you guys feel that way. Cause I thought that this anxiety was just my nineties postmodernism rearing its ugly Derridean head again, but mm-hmm. I am dang near allergic to what I see as discourse ending phrases. Yeah. So what do you do when you encounter one? Do you say I'm against justice? Um, sometimes I go that route and just play it ironic. Sometimes I say, well, it's become clear to me now that you already know how this ends. So unless you've got, you know, some avenue that this could go, I'm going to go ahead and cut it off here. Uh, that's that's that's, doing what they want you to do. That's allowing the discussion to be ended. but But it is naming it publicly. So, I mean, I, you know, uh, again, I mean, what I, what I tend to say is, I mean, uh, I welcome anyone who actually wants to have a conversation, but this isn't one. Mm. And yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, 
that might just increase the self-righteousness of those who throw around, you know, white male straight priv privilege and so on. Uh, <laughs> but just as a hypothetical example, of course, uh, but <laughs> there you go. Mansplaining. <laughs> yeah, there I go. Mansplaining. Yes. Uh, but I mean, honestly, when I see those phrases pop up, that is a red flag to me to use another worn out phrase. Sorry, Orwell, uh, that, you know, this isn't a conversation that's actually got any openness to it. It's a, it's a closed system. My interlocutor already knows how this is going to end. So what's the point in continuing? Yeah, I wonder if the spectacle. internet has made it particularly easy to do this. Oh, I don't know that it's made it particularly easy. I think it's made it easier to find because you can do a Google search. <laughs> it has to have intensified it in some way. I mean, it's just there's so many places to go to just hear your own opinion uh, shouted back at you now. Um, that it, it has to have an, at least an intensifying effect, if not. Yeah, but I, I would say that's a function of the fact that there's just more places. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Um, okay. Okay. So, I agree with that. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, <laughs> that alone, I think is, is destructive though. And so, I mean, because it's more intense means it's worse, I, I would say. So, um, the, not that it didn't exist before, but the intensity of it, I think is, is, um, uh, I don't know. And, and like I was just saying, I feel like it just leads to a culture of spectacle. Like you just sort of watch. Um, it's like the MMA version of rhetoric in some ways. And you sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, watch two people choke each that other out. That would be you know? awesome. <laughs> you know? Well, part, so, of, part know. of the problem is there's no gatekeepers. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, for, for Orwell to get his essay on politics and the English language published, it had to go through at least an editor and maybe an editorial board that, mm -hmm. that, that was, at least in theory, able to look at it and say, hey, you've got some problems with this. Why don't you fix it up? And I mean, we all hate gatekeepers, right, when they're the ones keeping us out, but you know, behold your world without gatekeepers. I kind of yeah. dig it, but I'm 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 also far more of a democratic spirit than Michael is. That's true. What you get is YouTube comments, right? And, right. And so this is, <laughs> yeah. And, and is that really valuable? Like, the, and, there's your there's your democratic world, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. It cracks me up. YouTube is just hilarious. Any video about anything, but about the fourth comment down, there'll be a comment, black people, terrible, you know, and so like, this, or God, God's nothing, not real. Yeah. There's like, people just like find an excuse to say something racist or something. If you, if you ever really want to lose faith in humanity, go read the comments at weather.com. <laughs> you, you would think this would be a, a place relatively free of religious debate, for example, but you would be wrong. Why wow. does there need to be comments on I'm pro thunderstorm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, yeah. You'll, get, you'll get like, we're praying for the people in Birmingham after the tornado, and then uh, an internet atheist will uh, t take the opportunity to demonstrate that there is no God. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. Well, uh, Michael, uh, then we'll go around the horn after this. After having, now that we've looked at this essay again, and perhaps for the first time in a while, what is there a concept or a moment? that particularly stands out to you and why is that? And maybe this is a chance for us to challenge our culture to do a bit better in a certain arena. And when you've had your say, just pass the podium over to Nathan. First, a confession. We used that phrase around the horn because Nathan used it in one of our first show notes. I have no idea what the metaphor originally referred to. Oh, really? I can tell you. I could, this one, I don't want this metaphor to die. This is uh, after you have thrown a runner out in first in a baseball game. Uh, one of the customs that has developed is for the infielders to throw the ball to all of the 
baseman and the shortstop and then back to the pitcher. So they go around the horn with it. But that Is must that itself be a metaphor because there's no horn. Oh, point taken, point taken. Anyway, yeah, just uh, we, we use that phrase almost every week, and I had no idea what it meant. I mean, I knew it yeah, meant it's, it's, all of us speak. Yeah, it's, it's a baseball thing. Oh, there you go. Um, the biggest thing, I, I think, the most important thing here is that, that thinking is writing, and thus sloppy writing is sloppy thinking. Mm-hmm. And and uh, this this is this is what th- this is what people who use bureaucratic language either don't understand or don't care about, which is that when you when you write that way, not only is it hard for other people to see what you mean, you don't know what you mean, and so so mm-hmm. sloppy writing often, although I, I don't want to say always, goes along with uh, with sloppy thinking, um, with with some exceptions, you know there are, there are people who try to write obtusely for purposes and that that's a little different but mm-hmm. for most of us clarity in writing is clarity in thought which is not to say we should all try for utmost simplicity because as nathan has pointed out thought is not always simple and so complexity is not the same thing as obfuscation and there i go using a long word where a short one would do <laughs> toss it around the horn michael oh uh nathan <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the six rules, I, like I said, I haven't taught this essay in about six years. Uh, so rule number six really stood out to me this time and I don't know why it never occurred to me before, but built into that sixth rule is a sort of, uh, I, I would say educated elitism. Uh, and I think it's a, a fascinating little moment and here, you know, here's where my inner dairy doc comes out. Uh, after all of this, you know, talk about, you know, language that, attempts to put on airs, the final bit of advice he says is break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. Uh, and this time, and I don't know why it didn't occur to me before, I thought, well, why is it that you, George Orwell, Mr. British Empire, get to decide what's barbarous? Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, uh, I think this essay is fun precisely because uh First of all, it ends with an obvious Hellenism, barbarous. And second of all, because the sort of putting on airs that he criticizes all the way through, uh, he can't hold it up till the end. Now, he might just be uh, having a moment of jest, and I might be taking him entirely too seriously here. I'll entertain that possibility. Uh, but I do think, at the very least, it's an interesting moment. What do you got, Danny? But well, before, I, you, before, you, before you go on, Danny... Um... Surely he's invoking Matthew Arnold's use of the the term barbarism there. Oh, okay. Tell me about that because I'm not familiar mm. with it. We talked about it sometime this semester. I can't remember. Okay. The tradition, the tradition episode. I think it was. Um, yeah, you, Danny, you you run the Arnoldian project, so I should let you talk about Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, well, well, run is a loose word there itself, but um, um, well, I mean. To, to Arnold, the barber, you know, barbarians are not uh, like low class people. It's sort of aristocratic, uh, and so uh, I think that's I. You say this now. I'm I'm trying to think on my feet because I hadn't made that connection before. Um, just to reiterate, like when Arnold uses the term um, um, uh, Philistine, like we we come to think of that as sort of this like 
gross sort of uneducated person who just doesn't care about anything. And so, um, but the way Arnold actually described it is it's sort of the undirected working class, uh, who, who, um, with, oh, that's um, much better. <laughs> who, who, yes. So, well, no, 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 who, but that implies some sort of salvation for them. And, and so, uh, it, wh- who with some culture can, um, be directed and used in a, a positive way, um, for a positive social way. Right. Uh, and not used, but, uh, can make a positive social contribution. And so, um, but the, the barbarians are sort of, uh, decadent sort of aristocratic vestigial, uh, kind of populations who, um, have access to sort of wealth and privilege and, and quote unquote culture, but, uh, are using it in sort of selfish, um, kind of self-serving ways. And so, uh, explain to me, Michael, I guess, uh, the, the connection you see. Well, it, it ends up not being a racist, if indeed he's invoking Arnold, it ends up not being a racist, classist, ethnocentric statement. Mm. It ends up being a statement against the class from which he comes. It's it's ignorance within a class that, if we're racist, classist, and ethnocentric, ought to know better. Yes. Now, whether that makes it better or not, I don't know, but it certainly makes it different. I don't, I don't think I don't think he's he's referring to the lower classes here. I think he's the the the, the barbarisms are are stuff that comes from educated people. Yeah, and that's actually a really interesting uh, one point in this essay. It's earlier than that. He talks about some of the problems in using uh, these euphemistic terms. Uh, pacification is the term that stands out to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, when a government uses pacification uh, as a term, for, as a program, this is what we're doing. We're pacifying. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And this is very much a link to 1984, the kind of uh, you know changing of the language to, um, to make it sort of ill-suited to what's actually going on. Um, so, but what it actually means on the ground is millions of peasants are robbed from their farms and sent trudging along roads with no more than they can carry. Oh, no, that's transfer of population. Uh, yeah. pacif- pacification is defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out to the countryside, the cattle machine gun, the hut set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification, he says. And so there is, like, I, I think, not even implicit, but explicit in this essay, a... Uh, a a, a care for the lower classes. And so I think you're right there, Michael. I think that when he's using barbarous, it's not as an attack on, on the, on, on the lower classes, but as a, uh, a, it's probably more directed to people who should know better. Then in that case, has it become simply a meaningless word that means ungood? Well, I, I, well, I would say when Arnold uses it, no, because Arnold defines okay. it. In, in Orwell's case, it depends on how much the audience, the British audience in 1946, would have been mm-hmm. familiar with culture and anarchy. And I can't answer that question. Okay. Oh, I'm sure that they would have. Uh, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have been at that time. So. Um, all right. All right. Yeah. Certainly more familiar than your average audience now is, which means when you teach this, you got to explain what barbarism means. Yeah. Which is fun because uh, it makes see, you look I, smarter I mean, anyway. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, Danny, what do you got? <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> I've been I've been derailed. Um, that's okay though. Uh, that's a good thing. Well, I think that his own self critique. Uh, at one point, he says, uh, "I'm sure if you look back through this essay, you'll see multiple cases where I've broken my own rules here." And I think that that kind of gets back to what Michael is saying: is that writing 
is never like complete and perfect. It's always sort of messy and something to struggle over and, and knowing that you'll never sort of make it perfect because your thought is never complete, right? And so we've, I think I've said this before, if you go back and relook at a piece that you've written from a couple of years ago, you will want to change things, uh, not so much because they were wrong, but because you have grown as a person and you've changed as a person. So I do think that there's a connection between writing and actually living and thinking, right? And, and so I think that's a lesson that you can take from this is that uh, that connection makes it important to consider seriously. And, and he's, we've talked before about, you know, whether he's snobbish or whatever, but I think the overall emphasis of this essay is to just at least thoughtfully consider what you're writing instead of just, um, blurting it out there because it's easy. Um, if you, if you think of, um, uh, like sports, uh, sports interviews, like after the game sports interviews, uh, this is sort of a perfect example of people saying things without thinking. They just string together meaningless phrases. Right. And so these things are extremely either boring or entertaining to watch, to watch people struggle through mm -hmm. this. Uh, but, uh, I think that that's, you know, uh, a place in our culture where we can see what bad writing does to the intellect. Yeah. And, and I feel like um, it's particularly for us in, in academia and thus those of us who, who write to other people, uh, I think we need to take care um, with the minute details of, should I be using this metaphor? Uh, should I be using this term? Does it actually mean what I mean it to mean? And so I think that that's something that I take from it. And so, mm -hmm. um, and as I'm, I have the, the essay pulled up on a web page and it's freaking me out because these ads keep popping up for uh to for me to buy 1984 an animal farm from uh amazon.com and so like <laughs> it's a perfect sort of <laughs> orwellian moment i think because as i'm reading an essay about the dangers of mechanism uh mechanical ads uh like suddenly appear before me so um well um nathan uh what do we have next year or next week <laughs> We haven't planned next year yet. Uh, <laughs> next week will be our annual Christmas episode. I'm at the helm this time, so we will be reading and discussing together John Milton's poem on the morning of Christ's nativity. All right, that sounds great. Um, in the meantime, be sure to check us out at uh, the blog website, christianhumanist.org. Uh, or send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Is that yep. true? Ah, I got it. First time. All right. Um, and uh, until then, I am Danny Anderson saying so long for uh, Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer. And let your sins be strong and your faith be stronger. <laughs>